When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Guys, uh, <laughs> welcome back to the show. ZDog MD, Dr. Vinay Prasad. You know who he is. You kind of know who I am. We're just going to talk about stuff and things, especially the madness around coronavirus and our response to coronavirus. I mean, Thanks what? for having me back. Yeah. I came here just to, I, I really enjoy our conversations, even if it's just you and I, actually. It's really, true. Yeah. Like now, because we're, we're not really neighbors. Yeah. Like we're actually enough out of the way that we have to make a, a point of you coming by, but. I just look forward to it. I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna hang out with a dude that I agree with. You know what's funny? So somebody uh, called called me out oh boy. on, uh, I don't know if it did. was Twitter or Facebook. And they were like, I've noticed that most of your guests are Indian. Uh, <laughs> is this a racial bias issue towards your own tribe? And I'm like, Indians don't even accept me because I, I, I'm, a, I'm actually a Zoroastrian. Right. We're like a minority group yeah. in India. And then I look back and I was like, it was you, Monica Gandhi, Jay Bhattacharya. Mm. I'm like, something's happening here. Were you profiling? I'm profiling, you know, I it's like revert. I'm like a TSA agent. I only pick the brown people to, <laughs> to go deep on. I'm scared to even laugh at that joke. I know, right? You're gonna get canceled just for <laughs> laughing. Yeah, so what's been going on, man? It's been just laughing crazy. to just so that for the record, I'm just laughing to make you feel good about that joke. No, I just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you can't even make a joke on Twitter now about anything without the danger of being canceled. I think it's. I think people are in a quite humorless state. <laughs> if you ask me, yeah. I mean, I think that people are tensions are high. Um, nobody wants to admit it, but of course, everyone to some degree is suffering emotionally. I think you uh -huh. know, with quarantine, with month after month the pandemic, um, and when tensions are high. Humor is is a is a is a lacking commodity. It's a lacking commodity, yet we can employ it to disarm. However, yeah. now it's like you cannot everybody's on pins and needles. Like, am I gonna say the wrong thing? Am I gonna offend such and such and so and so and such and such and so and so? Like someone tried to cancel the white coat investor on Twitter. Like when that starts when you're canceling a financial dude who's like the most boring person mm -hmm. on the planet, like how are you gonna cancel some, you know we've reached peak madness. And I think I think COVID is contributing a little bit. COVID is, I mean, there's something in the air that says, you know, when you're cooped up all day at home, um, you know, I think like the Romans and the gladiator, what do they do? They had those Colosseum events and somebody got killed at the end of the day. And the modern Colosseum, the modern gladiation is you find somebody who said something wrong and off with their head, you know, one way or the other, either through their professional, their employment, through public shaming, something like that. It keeps us all engaged. We all are having popcorns well, I hate to be that person, even though to some degree, uh, some of us should have a little bit of sympathy because, you know, to judge somebody based on one comment they made that may or may not be taken out of context, I think is is quite cruel, actually. I strongly disagree with this culture that yeah, we're in. This culture is, I, I like that term gladiation, because yeah, gladi that's what it is. It's, it's You're about scoring points in a ring for entertainment and for credibility and for reputational points. Because yeah. well, humans are reputational creatures. You know, we're, we're, we're built around what's our public reputation, how are we seen in the tribe, because it's <clears throat> life or death for us. If we say the wrong thing and our reputation is damaged, we don't get hunting privileges, we don't get to have sex, we don't get to to get food. So historically it's hardwired in us. And so we've weaponized it through social media and then COVID descends like a pall on the whole thing and weaponizes it further because everyone's like, <gasps> we're, we're hyper emotional, we're, we're deprived of physical yeah. contact with people. Yeah. And which gets me to this whole, we live in California. Yes. 
It's starting to feel a little bit uh, insane now because these the pendulum swings from, hey, let's open up, and uh, no, you can't go outside on a trail with a mask. You can't have outdoor dining. How are you thinking about this? Yeah, so I think for the listeners who uh, aren't immersed in California, we've had a number of new restrictions come through um, in the face of rising case counts. And of course, you know, I think you and I would want to do whatever's reasonable, necessary to keep cases under control. But some of the things we're doing just don't make a lot of sense. Um, One of which is closing playgrounds. Um, One of which is, I think, closing outdoor dining, to be honest with you. Absolutely. I mean, I don't see clear and convincing evidence that those actions are going to bend the case curve downward. And that's important. I mean, I think this is something people don't understand. You only get to make so many rules. There's only so much energy out there that you can get people to comply with whatever you want them to comply with. Beyond that, you're blowing your energy, your political capital, and you're not getting anything back. Um, And so I think you can have irrational, excessive policies. Um, I would say closing playgrounds is probably top of that list. It's just going to piss off parents. It's going to make everyone frustrated. And we don't have good evidence that that's where the virus is spreading. So why are you doing that? Um, I think it's it's, it's really something that has brought a lot of people out of the woodwork, public health experts to say, what are you doing, California? It is the opposite of harm reduction. What you're doing is you're creating a kind of pandemic fatigue. You're creating authority fatigue and you have no respect now for the authorities because you're like, this just makes no sense. Like Scott Adam, who wrote Dilbert, used to say, you know, if there's a rule, like a business rule yeah. that makes no sense, like it, it really causes straight demoralization. And Elon Musk took it the next step and was like, listen, if there's something that makes you feel like you're in a Dilbert cartoon, maybe we should readdress that rule. <laughs> well, so, you know, not being able to go on a trail, not being able to eat, eat outdoors, first of all, it's punishing these small businesses. It's economically devastating and it has, there's no science behind it. So why, but then they'll say, follow the science. All the science, but this is, this is I think, is not science-based. Right. But you know, can I tell you a little story that you, yeah. you remind me of? Many years ago, I think I was like a fellow at the NIH. I had to do a rotation in Washington, D.C., and you've got to get like a DC training license. Um, and I remember you had to do a lot to get this training license. You had to fill out all these forms online and submit them. And then the last step was you had to go get fingerprinted. And so I like filled out all these forms. Um, and and I the last step was like book your fingerprinting appointment. I was like booked it for Tuesday. And I go down there on Tuesday and I um, – and I got my fingerprint appointing. I sent in all the forms and I get there and the guy's like, um, I'm sorry, sir, you can't get fingerprinted. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, we haven't received your forms. I was like, what are you talking about? It's an electronic submission. Like you have them. And he was like, no, see what happens is the forms go in, it goes to a printer, it gets printed out. <laughs> and then I open this folder. I put the forms in the folder. And only after the folder has been opened and you have the forms in the folder, can you come and get fingerprinted added to the folder? And so <laughs> I said, let me ask you, why can't you just take one of those folders, put my name on it, fingerprint me, put that in the folder. When the forms print, you add it to the folder. You see what I'm saying? Ah. And he was like, oh, I can't do that. We can't do that. And I was like, this is why people's heads are gonna explode. Like, what sense does this make? Um, and you and I know, there's so many things in life and in medicine where you feel that frustration where you're like, okay, why are you so adhering to rules that make no sense at all? Um, and I think I'd put this in that category, playgrounds closed, Um, that's not gonna bend the curve on the pandemic. It's just gonna fatigue your populace. It's going to lead to resentment. Um, And meanwhile, there are places in this country where they're going the other direction. They're not even doing basic things. Like Florida, right? Florida, I was just talking to that friend of mine in Florida um, who was telling me, um, you know, that 
this 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 gentleman went out to lunch and I said, oh, where'd you eat? And he's like, I had lunch with my friend um, indoors. And I was like, what do you mean indoors? He's like, indoor dining? And he's like, yeah, we have indoor dining in Florida. And I said, um, and he's like, well, don't worry. Uh, we have to wear a mask if we get up to go to the bathroom. I was like, oh yeah, that's gonna, <laughs> <laughs> that's gonna stop it. Cause that's when it happens. That's when it happens. You know, when when your, your bladder is full. <laughs> Uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, that's what the science that's is. That's COVID leaps. All the science. All the science, Benai. yeah. You know, the, 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 but this is, see, the, the reason I like talking to you, the reason we hang out at all professionally mm. is that I think we fancy ourselves just rationalists. Like, let's just actually use some clear thinking. There's no political bent here. It's just, None. hey, but yet everything's politicized now. Everything is weaponized. And I think I think what happened was early on, I think, and this is, I think LA Times had a piece on this this morning that I thought actually kind of captured the zeitgeist of this. That I'm not even using that word, right? But I'm gonna use I it. You are. It's a big word. Am yes. I? Good. All right, I have the blessing. So it, it, it said early on when like the administration was kind of blowing off, hey, don't worry about this thing, when everything's fine, whatever. The public health authorities decided, well, to counter that, we're gonna get, like really absolutist because we need to say, hey, no, in no uncertain terms, you need to do this, 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 all right, fine. And the problem was then both of them are speaking in relatively absolute terms, which the public is gonna have a very short patience for, especially when you're gonna do a lockdown, but you're not gonna support the businesses or you're not gonna support essential workers in a way that is meaningful. So you do a half-ass lockdown initially with absolute uh, public health messaging that's just this, and then it changes. No, oh, actually masks. And then and then now what you're doing is the public health guys still are in that mindset and they're like, okay, it's just say no. Like, it's just like drugs, complete abstinence. So we don't want you socializing. We don't want you traveling. We don't want you going to Thanksgiving. We don't want you going to Christmas. We want you to sit down, stay home and bend the curve because otherwise, lives. Yes. And you know, I think you're putting it so well that it's getting worse and worse. And I think it started out perhaps well-intentioned. There were some people who came out there said, let's do some sensible things. This pandemic is coming. Gosh, we, yeah. we've got to get ahead of this. Um, and then there were a few people out there who, you know, maybe were frank COVID denialists. Um, 5G causes COVID or there's no COVID, right? There's no COVID. There's no COVID. That's and my favorite one. That's my favorite. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there's no COVID. Okay. Well, all right. Well, that's a tough one. To, it's a tough Come, Come talk back. to my friends in the hospital. Yeah, right. I yeah, know. Yeah. yeah. That's 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 something where I I don't know where I'm gonna where we're gonna start this debate. Right. Um, but in response to that, I think on the other end, um, there were people who said it's not enough that COVID is extremely lethal in 80-year-olds and extremely lethal in 70-year-olds and 60-year-olds and 50-year-olds. It's not enough that it's really bad in older age groups and for people with comorbidities. It's gotta be the worst thing imaginable. Right. And so they started escalating. And so now, um, you know. One of the best things about COVID, thank God, um, was it's not very lethal among kids. Um, but then they said, well, you know, it causes Kawasaki-like syndrome or causes, you know, this- MISC, right? yeah. Um, yeah, but what's the denominator? I mean, yes, yeah. of course, it, but what's the denominator? It, it's a risk, it's rare, it's horrible if it happens. You don't want it to happen, um, but it's still quite- unlikely to happen, thank God. Right. Um, they started talking about myocarditis. Um, the 20 year old, even though they recovered asymptomatic, well, on MRI, on T2 weighted MRI, oh, they've got some spots on the MRI. And so, you know, what does that mean? Well, I don't know, but it doesn't sound good to me. It's and scary. And we, it's scary. And the thing is we don't MRI everyone who's had flu or, or Coxsackie virus Coxsackie. or you know, whatever it is. If, if I put you in an MRI every day, I promise you, you'd be missing some organs by the end of the year. You know, like <laughs> yeah, there's, you you're gonna find something and then somebody's gonna be trigger happy. It's like, cut that out. Absolutely. I don't know what Adrenaloma, that is. Adrenaloma, something else. Of course. Incidentalomas, they call them. And it, a thousand percent. And you know, it's funny. So I was talking to, I it just didn't read Paul Offit and we had a great conversation. Yeah. And he really 
elucidate a lot of good ideas around these mRNA vaccines that are coming out. And he's sitting on the committee and, you know, As I see that, he's wink, wink, there. the data I've seen. And I see. And this is a positive vibe coming from the dude, which is interesting because in early on, he was quite skeptical because he's made vaccines and he's like, we've never made them like this. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be insane if we see it within a year. Now we're gonna see it within a year, which means that- the Greatest success story the greatest of, the, success. of the 2020. Yeah. It really is. And and he's willing to say that. He's like, hey, I give I give the administration credit. I give it, and he's like, that's a scientist. He did say something though, that I think was new for him, which he said, this is a scary virus. We don't know how it's, you know, uh, uh, you know the, with these children with this inflammatory thing, these long haulers, this and that. So. And I think he was saying that to try to make a case that you should get vaccinated even if you don't think you're gonna die. Mm -hmm. Now, he would not have said that, I think. And again, I don't mean to- No, 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 to, go on, yeah. I'm just using this as an he example. He would not have said that had there not been people denying it. Had there not been people denying it and had, there, had it not been about a vaccine, if it was about mm -hmm. just let's open schools, mm -hmm. he would have said, well, actually on balance, schools being open is better for the health of children than the detriment of being infected with COVID. Yeah. So it's all contextual. Yeah, yeah, so he's yeah. a very nuanced communicator and thinker, but but the way our public health apparatus works is it's just catastrophization yes. or just straight minimalization if it's you know Atlas or someone. And if you're on social media and you start to toss things out in this space, catastrophization, minimization, or something in the middle, as you start talking, you'll just see yourself being rewarded for the worse it is, more tweets, retweets, Absolutely. more likes. Yeah. Worse it is, worse it is. And you get and you see people just drifting in that direction. Or somebody starts drifting in the other direction to where it's this is a nothing burger. This makes you know. Yeah. So you can watch the the rewards pull people to polls. The people in the middle who, you know, take it seriously, want to do reasonable things, but don't want to be excessive, want to um, properly budget uh, how much energy people have for restrictions. That is something that's very difficult to build. It's not rewarded. I think it's a deep problem. I agree. And what's interesting is that's a social media construction. When I've actually met people, because people will come up, oh, you're a doctor? Oh, well, so what do you think? This COVID thing's a hoax, right? I mean, I read this and I read that. I mean, what do you think about it? You can have a nuanced conversation right. with someone who's been weaponized against COVID being real with five minutes. You can, because you're person to person and you understand you can vibe on the on the, the body language and go, this person's not trying to fool me. This person's not a bad person. They're just, or, yeah, they're just, they've been confused online. And that, and that works, but we don't get to do that on Twitter because you get rewarded for exactly the opposite. You get rewarded for catastrophizing, like, you know, stay home and then, you know, hashtag you're a loser if you don't wear a mask. And it's like, well, but actually that's not helpful. That's a, that's a just say no argument. So I recently tweeted and uh, got, got a little well, this bit is of backlash. Yeah, this I is recently tweeted um, that um, uh, it, was a, it was a link to a news story about rising cases in Miami-Dade County. And I said, my friend tells me that you can have uh, a lunch indoors in a restaurant in Florida Florida. Meanwhile, we're one step away from a mask mandate in the shower in California. <laughs> <laughs> thought it was funny too. That's comedy. I thought I thought right. it was good. The shower mask mandate. The shower mask mandate. Right, right. But you know, it's a joke. But it, it's not that far from things no, we've not. seen. Um, there is a mandate in Washington State for children who are playing outdoors um, to wear a mask while participating in outdoor sports activities. Which is, I don't know if you've been to Seattle this time of year, but let's just say they don't got the sun that we do. It's a pretty mm -hmm. damp state, so mm -hmm. that really is a a water based mask mandate, which is, <laughs> I would say, unlikely to be uh, effective. effective or useful uh, at anything other than frustrating children and parents who are trying to keep the mask on the kids. Um, so anyway, so I made my joke. Oh boy. And then within like, and then somebody texted me. I was like, oh, yeah, people aren't gonna like your joke or something. Uh, or people aren't liking your joke. And I took a look because I'm actually quite disciplined about 
I, I try not to look at what these people are saying back yeah. to me, you know, because yeah, I don't yeah. want it to affect me. What do you mean way. these people, Vinay? These people, I mean. Yeah, that's these, racist. <laughs> these people. <laughs> well, thankfully, people of all races, shapes, and sizes. Hate respond, you, yeah, equally, or yeah. Hate or love. It's right, one, right, right. One or the other. Depends on the day of the week. Right. Um, but um, yeah, I try not to let the emotions of the most vocal among us guide my internal compass. I try to keep it based on like discourse. like Rational this, discourse, rational discourse, yeah. Right. So I was like, I looked in, there's like all these people like, oh, this is so objectionable. This is bad. You know, but I'm like, oh my God, you know, like, can't you take a joke? Um, and, and there's some truth in the joke. Actually, if you really think about the joke, like all good jokes, there's a lesson to learn. And the lesson is you should do what matters. So maybe we shouldn't have indoor dining, uh, right. you know, with masks on the way to the restroom. Um, but maybe we shouldn't close playgrounds. Maybe we shouldn't have those masks in uh, outdoor wet environments, recommendations that just sap our morale. Right. Um, and so it's a joke that's that rings true to a it's lot perfect. of us. Yeah. yeah. In my mind, it's the perfect, <laughs> it's a perfect satirical comment. Yes, yeah, satirical. Right, you're saying, listen, I'm gonna point out through humor what what is true um, and make you look at it. And the fact that people are upset is interesting to me because I think, and this fits your typical, because you said something right in the beginning of this, which is, I got a text. Yeah. Now, this is usually my threshold. When I get a text about a tweet or some social media post, that's when I know, it's like, you know, in The Matrix, when Agent Smith in the second movie, he escapes from The Matrix uh -huh. and starts causing havoc in the real world. Yes. That's when you realize, oh, something has escaped from the Twitter matrix or the Facebook matrix and is out in the world texting me, which means now I have to take this seriously, which is upsetting because this is just dumb on Twitter. And then now it's like, oh, this is somehow gonna affect my life because something I said has triggered an audience primed to try to get social points by attacking back. Mm -hmm. And it's hurt no one. It's a joke. You can disagree and you can argue with it, but why cancel the person, right? Because if you were with me, you wouldn't want to cancel me because you'd realize I was a decent person. Of course, and 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 it was a good joke. <laughs> it was a, good, yeah, <laughs> it was a damn exactly. good joke. Um, and there's a lot of truth in it. Um, I, I guess I think we have seen several examples. I think of people getting attacked personally, and you know, if, if we were trying to put like specific concrete to what it means to be canceled, I think it means to complain to someone's employer, yeah. to seek out people they know in the real world and badmouth them, and try to get them facing some sort of censor or punishment or retribution in the real world uh, for something said online. You know, it's absolutely fair to reply to the tweet and say I disagree with this or this doesn't make me laugh or you know something that right. somebody who's not funny would say. Uh, but right. if you if you want to do that, that's that's fine, but if you start to bring it into the real world, um, I think that's where people um, think the threshold should be extremely high. And one should wonder if by doing that, you're actually helping some cause. In this case, I, I don't know what they would be thinking they'd help, but I'm actually not too worried about this because I think no, any this is sensible person would understand that I actually have a, quite a point, I think, and I'm happy to defend that point and argue about that point if anyone wants to. Um, to dialogue about it. It is, uh, uh, <clears throat> this idea of affecting people in the real world for their opinions, for their speech is fascinating. Like it's one thing to cancel, like say, okay, I don't want as an advertiser, I don't wanna put my name on somebody who's saying something that I fundamentally disagree with. Okay, then you're voting with your dollars, that's fine. But what, what's happened to me in the past, which is fascinating, yeah. like I've said things like, you know, I think um, everyone should practice at the top of their training. Mm -hmm. Okay, that apparently is a dog whistle for give nurse practitioners and PAs independent practice apart from doctors, which I've never said. And I, I actually don't, I don't agree with that. Oh, that's I think, interesting. Yeah. That topic, so that's that whole thing, so said something like that and then a bunch of doctors started attacking me. And these are doctors that are on these very weaponized Facebook groups like Physicians for Patient Protection. <laughs> they have these very 
elegant names like that. And what they decided was they get together, they form a mob. And remember, they already don't like you. So there's always some pre-existing- That's what I wanted to bring up with you. Yes, right? let's talk there's about a, that. Yeah. yeah, let's talk about it because there's a pre-existing, I'll tell the story then we'll go into yeah, that yeah. because there's like any mob, there's a pre-existing grudge. So, oh, such and such did this to me once or Z-Dog once made a video that offended me or I just hate that guy because he doesn't have to see patients all day to make a living and I do. Or he's successful at what he does. Even is, worse. No, but I, I, I mean- um, that's, that is a common grudge people do bear is that they view you uh, as a successful person. I think all of us view ourselves as some degree of success and some degree of things that we feel like we have yet to succeed in. Abject imposter syndrome, yeah. yeah I, everybody has that, no matter how successful they are. Right. I've talked to people who are deans or you know whatever, presidents, universe, they all feel like, well, I should have gotten, you know, everyone has that feeling. Um, but somebody else may look at you and see somebody successful and they may resent you simply because of the success that they see in you, um, which I think is a very petty emotion, a very childish emotion. And, and, and also very human, it ha very it's human. common and reputational. And, and so what, what ends up happening yeah. is they then leave the matrix yes. and they start calling up yeah, yeah, yeah. people on my website yeah. where I'm gonna be speaking. And they're like, we're doctors and we think this guy is a poison and so on. And so these people would then call me and say, you know, we have a bunch of doctors complaining about you. We'd like to cancel the talk that you were scheduled to do, which I mean, this is how at that time I was monetizing all of this. Like that's how I paid for all this equipment before we had a supporter tribe. Right. And so that was like, it would be like a financial, direct financial hit. Of course, yeah. Like you're being canceled. Yeah. Except that in my contracts, I always put that the 50% depo deposit is non-refundable, which good. means I just got paid half of the talk to no not do anything. It's the dream. And that is the dream. So what I'm saying is you, you can immunize yourself a little bit about, against this, but you also have to say, listen, I'm willing to die on my sword financially to say something that I think is important. Yeah, and I think um, to your point, which is that when one investigates beyond um, people who are critical of somebody online, one often finds a pattern that these two individuals have interacted before yeah. and disagreed on a number of diverse topics. And what does that say to me? That says to me that some of the disagreement in the moment um, may be disingenuously uh, applied. It may actually be pre-existing grievance or disagreement. Why is that important? I think if we wanna judge someone fairly based on whatever they did, even if we disagree with what they did and want to punish them for what they did, it should be based on the merits of that individual instance and case and not based on how, you know, Tom treated Tim, uh, you know, four years ago on some other topic and they've got some beef between the two of them. But you don't see all that on social media. And many of the people who cast the first stone are people who have a pre-existing grievance. You know, what's funny is it's no different than middle school politics oh, yeah. weaponized. And that's why I think middle school girls have such a hard time now with social media. They're more anxious, they're more depressed, they're more suicidal because these little grievances, like and such and so and so and gossip now become truly a thing that you cannot escape from no matter where you are. So you can be at home and it's still happening yes. because it's reaching you through the phone. Yes, and, and there's I, no distance and yeah. None of even, that. Yeah. Um, you brought up the interesting question about should nurse practitioners practice independently? And somebody mm. might Google me and see, I've written actually in support of that practice. And I'll tell you my, mm. my two cent argument. Oh, we're gonna get so canceled. <laughs> I'm, I'm disavowing anything he says right now. <laughs> no, keep going, keep going. Okay, I mean, yeah. the gist of my argument is that um, all practitioners exist on a spectrum from people who are extremely savvy and very independent and highly competent and people who are need some assistance, need some guidance, some supervision. Right. Um, and I think that we focus 
focus so much on the median differences between groups of people based on their training background, be it NPPA or MD or DO. Um, we focus so much on those median differences, we forget that the variability within the group is often quite large. And I would say we probably need a system that would think about both ends a little bit more clearly. So by that I mean the people who are lagging, whether that's they're an MD or a DO or an NP or a PA, um, who need a little guidance and supervision, we probably need a system where we better detect that and provide them that guidance. Mm. And the people who are the all-stars in whatever field, um, you know, more freedom, more flexibility, more independence. Um, of course, the system we have now, it uses the degrees as a 100% surrogate for this, for performance on the job. And I would think that probably, so my, my just to my argument is that I think many NPs and PAs, um, you know, should have independent practice authority. There needs to be some system to say, you know, who should or shouldn't have it. Um, MDs, of course, they all have independent practice authority, but on the MD side, maybe we'd say that there's some people on the back end who, you know, we do a bad job in medicine of of of, of picking the low performers and and remediating them. We do we we have malpractice suits and things like that. Those randomly pick you know somebody who did something often egregious and give them the death penalty. Right. Uh, but the average person doing a poor job is just like skates undetected for their whole career. And so I so that's the gist of how I think about it. Now um, see see this to me what you just did was you described everybody should practice at the top of their ability, which is what you said. Yeah, <laughs> which and is exactly I said what training. Said. What I should have yeah. said is ability. Yeah, because that when I talk about this health 3.0 idea, it's everybody on the team practicing at the top of their abilities in service of not just the patient because that's narrow in service of each other as well. Mm -hmm. So that means that if you have an all-star PA, we all know that PA or that or several PA, know, yeah. well, uh, they ought to be given as much merit meritocracy-based license as yes, they can, yeah. whereas the idiotic MD who went to a top school who you wouldn't let touch your dog. And we all know that person, you know, Dr. Death, the, yeah. you know, what is it? Hands of death and destruction. Yeah. Uh, and those people get to do whatever they want. Yeah. And and we don't we don't have a process like pilots have where they mentor each other and they test each other. And the, the, it's it, instead it's CME, which is nonsense and board, Board re-upping, which is yeah. just a way to make money for these companies like ABIM, yep. which is a total scam. And built into sort of, I think, what you're articulating, I would even say that there are a lot of really good doctors, really good NPs who just get burdened with paperwork and menial tasks, in part because hospital systems and 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 health systems profit more mm. from burdening these providers. And I think your philosophy would say, take away that menial task that um, we can offload to other entities and let them really thrive. because. One of the things about being a doctor that we love is when you get to do what you're really, really good at. And and that often is making those critical medical decisions, sitting down with people, having the long conversations. I don't think it's necessarily doing the stupid billing and then the, the paperwork. And and let's not say that those those four letter word, epic, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, again, what you said is exactly this. Everybody should practice at the top of their ability. Instead, what we do is we make them practice like a clerk or a data entry analyst yeah. or, and so we do all this. And when I talk about health 3.0, I say we, we are technology enabled, but never enslaved. And what that means is we're not serving the technology. We're not serving Epic by data entry. Epic is serving us to take that off our plate mm -hmm. so that we can do what only we can do. And there's some things that only a absolutely highly trained physician with 10,000 hours and especially training can do. Nobody else can touch them. Let them do that. Like neurosurgery. Like neurosurgery. Sure. You're not gonna have a neurosurgery PA uh, do the full surgery because it's just not within the 
parameters, sure. right? But could a primary care nurse practitioner, a family nurse practitioner do a lot of stuff good in the world with their training? Absolutely, especially if they're good, right? And and and, and this is the thing. And so and what I've found is, this is what bothers me, is the people who are really um, activists on both sides of this. Yes. So there's activist yes, nurse practitioner yeah. and the activist doctors. All of them are practicing at the bottom of their license. Like the doctors are angry because the, the nurse practitioners are taking their money. Yes, I know. It's like, well, what are you doing? Uh, I mean, and so, I mean, I think you're hitting the nail on the head that it's really sort of similar to all the issues we've discussed where there's these polar extreme views that everyone, no matter what your license should have full authority to do everything. Right. Or um, the only person who should ever do anything is an MD. And and what we're talking about is something in between that acknowledges that people have different strengths and weaknesses and different people are are, are more or less capable than other people. And the system should find some way to evaluate things and make the same decisions we make for patients, individual and personalized decisions about what people can and can't do. And actually, we'd be better off for it because right now I think we're failing because um, there is really no oversight for huge chunks of medical care that if somebody looked through, they'd be like, what like, the hell what is the going, heck? going on? Yeah, Exactly right. Yeah. And uh, and you know, I think, I think there is this idea of not knowing what you don't know. Yes, that's true. And I think uh, a lot of doctors who are on the side of, hey, don't give them independent nurse, you know, they, they, they say, well, they just don't know what they don't know. And and I think those those representatives are the loudest in the let's have independent practice conversation and you worry about that. The ones that are like, I'm not sure we're ready for independent PA or nurse practice yet. They're the ones that you wanna give independent PA and nurse practice because they probably are, they have a degree of imposter syndrome, which is a good sign. They have a degree of self-introspection. Hey, medicine's hard, which means they're careful, they're thoughtful, they ask for help. And the same, I, I think that's a well put. And I think the same is true for doctors because the longer <laughs> I practice, I, I'm more and more comfortable with telling the fellow, you know what, um, this is how I've been uh, taught and trained and how 75% uh, or 80% of doctors would approach this problem. Um, but I think we need to delve a little bit deeper into why that has become the case, either historical or, or scientific. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of something. I was recently trying to explain how some, I don't know, new cancer drug works. And of course I was talking about some boring molecular pathway and at some point, <laughs> And I got a little bit stuck and I was like, oh shoot, I don't know if I know exactly at this molecular level how this drug works. Um, because again, I'm not a, a laboratory biologist in every single topic. I mean, <laughs> certainly I think I, I, I don't have that qualifications. And then I think the trainee um, with me was like, well, isn't understanding this very deep level of understanding how the drug works molecularly the thing that distinguishes doctors from mid-levels? I said, whoa, oh, that's a bold claim. I would say... I think that's not actually it. I mean, I know people feel that way uh, or may feel that way, that our basic science training is somehow what distinguishes. Um, I guess I would say that I think um, I think that, the, the, that there may not be an absolute distinguishing characteristic um, and that what maybe the real thing you want to talk about is what distinguishes good healthcare providers from those who are merely mediocre. And I would say, regardless of degree program, the thing that distinguishes good providers is they're always humble, they're always willing to say what they don't know and try to improve upon that for the next year versus people who I think are dwell going the bad direction where they, they think they know it all. That's that's it. That's it. That's it. That's all it is. And I we've done videos on Dunning Kruger effect. Oh, yes. Yeah. And this idea that when you don't know what you don't know, you cause trouble and you overestimate your knowledge. And when you know a lot, you underestimate your abilities or you overestimate the abilities of others. Yes. And, and I've, I've fallen sometimes into both traps. And what you see sometimes with say, for example, let's just say a floor nurse. All right. So they have a certain education in immunology, et cetera. They can be very persuaded by anti-vaccine 
sort of online propaganda, propaganda because it uses just enough scientific language that they know just enough to, but they don't know what they don't know. So they can't dig into the deeper um, rationale of no, why that argument is totally doesn't make sense. Like the Synecdon thing, have you heard this thing about? This is an amazing one. So they're, now they're saying that the anti-vaccine thing is, oh, these mRNA virus uh, vaccines are creating a cross-reactive antibody with placental synectin, which is this, okay, you know, some compound in this placenta. And so therefore getting vaccinated if you're a woman will sterilize you. <laughs> yeah, right? It makes you laugh right away. And yet you, but, yeah. but there's a plausibility. You're like, wait, this could happen. And then you have to think, okay, let's do two more steps of imagination. The wild type virus, which has by now infected tens of millions of yes. people, yes, least, has yeah. not created a case of female sterility that's been documented. Yeah, and that's going to have the same antibody production as this. Yeah, this spike protein that's purified and plus some convalescent plasma doesn't cause. Yes. So again, but they can't. But but if you don't have that degree of abstraction, you can't make that. So again, you're in that valley of Dunning Kruger, the, the peak of Dunning Kruger, where you've overestimated your ability, your confidence, yeah, your and therefore you're yeah. making mistakes. Mm. So this is what we ought to be teaching people: is how to think. Yes, I and, think it's the the poorest taught thing we do. And um, I mean, along those lines, I mean, let's just talk about medical education. Mm. There are some people you encounter in your medical education who you ask questions to, and you don't get a lot of answers. You get a lot of hostility. Remember those people? <laughs> oh, yes. My theory has always been that people display hostility when they actually themselves don't know the answer. Of course. And it's a great compensatory mechanism to get somebody to like never ask you a question again. Right. And, and I do think that that is, you know, and I've written about it many times, but like, how do we restructure medical education? I think that the core aspect of medical education is, you know, reasoning under uncertainty or partial certainty. And how do you think about that situation? Because a lot of our situations are, there's some uncertainty. Um, and how do you interpret clinical trials and how do you interpret pathophysiology and how do you make decisions when those two are at odds? Um, I think it's, it's the poorest taught uh, part of medical training. Um, and th and that's a, in my interest and of course the class that I teach. Yeah. Eh, see, the, 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 the nuance and the gray in not knowing everything, yeah. having uncertainty is paralyzing for some people. And it can be taught. It can be taught how to deal with that. I always enjoyed it. The fact that you just don't know everything. So let's see how we're gonna wind our way through the logic mill and you thinking rationally and clearly and then throwing a little emotion to make the final decision because sometimes it's a toss up. So how do I feel in my gut now? It's 50-50, yes. all right, I'm gonna go with this and see if it's right. If I'm wrong, then it reprograms my emotional gut for next time, right? We don't, people are so uncomfortable with that. And in fact, even, even my wife was uncomfortable with that in, medicine. So she trained in internal medicine with me. We did three years together. She board certified with me, Stanford, internal medicine. And she's like, I hate this. Why do you uh -huh. hate this? Because it's so gray. We don't know anything. I like radiology. It's there. Yeah. The answer's there. Or it's not there. Or yeah. it's not there. Yeah. And so she did another four years of radiology. And now she's like this world-class chest radiologist at Stanford because she saw what she what what she was comfortable with. But so, I wonder if actually, if you interviewed her again after practicing chest radiology for a long time, she'll actually say, you know, it's grayer than I thought it was. She will tell you, because I've had this conversation yeah. with her. She'll say, I'll, I'll say, you know, I think a computer's gonna replace you in five years. She's like, no way. And she's like, it won't happen in 50. And yeah. I'm like, why? You have no idea how gray, that's what she told me, yeah. how gray radiology is. But the beautiful thing is, I feel like I have the tools to navigate the grayness. In medicine, the grayness was 
to her a fog. I see, I see. Because it's yes, more human-based, yeah. Yes, yeah. I see, it, it connects yeah. with um, the domains of uncertainty that she likes and she's good at. Yeah. That's right, that's yeah. what it is. No, I mean, as somebody who spends a lot of time staring at radiographs, trying to make <laughs> decisions about whether or not things are getting better or worse, right. and you think about you know the story you heard, how people feel, the laboratory results, and the radiograph, and you're putting it all in, um, and you realize there is no like oracle you can appeal to. Um, at the end of the day, it is a judgment, it's a decision. You hopefully get better at it as you do, you go through your career, um, but it's an important decision. I think um, it's a decision that I find very interesting and appealing, and I like to talk through, you know, why I'm deciding the way I'm deciding. And and as a cancer doc, as a hemonc doc, this is the apex of that sort of human synthesis of the uncertain with all these pieces. Because yeah. you said, how does a patient feel? What are the labs showing? And what's the radiograph showing? And then synthesize them through the filter of your experience with this particular malignancy yes. and your experience with this particular patient. So, you know. And to tie it back to COVID, back we are talking about yeah. in the beginning. It has been my observation, although I have not empirically proven it, and maybe I should actually try to sit down and study it, that some of the people who get pulled to those draconian poles, the absolutist um, stay in your room till 2022 or, you know, <laughs> or the it doesn't exist at all, um, they don't have practical boots on the ground experience in this uncertain quagmire that clinicians find themselves and probably you know, people who go to Sub-Saharan Africa to battle Ebola or find themselves in. Mm. Um, they can often be, I'll give you one example. I mean, I think there are people who do wonderful work on um, uh, air ventilation and systems and aerosolization. Um, they often have very strong and dogmatic views about um, how we should mitigate the air. Um, but, you know, th those views may not actually mesh with sort of empirical data. Right. There are people who um, may be doing epidemiologic modeling for many years. Um, and they may have uh, very precise, I've seen some estimates predicting how many people are gonna get COVID to like the person, you know, wow. 422,242. And you're like, <laughs> oh God, I'm like, okay, you're uh, not gonna be right on the dot, but okay, all right. I get your point, but um, but they have very dogmatic views. Um, and then there are people who come into the debate about um, how mandates and policies work, um, and they may not know that you know anytime you mandate something or make a policy, um, the intervention isn't the perfect world where everyone does what you say. It's what your recommendation does when it goes out into the ether. And one of the things you could do, it could piss off a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So you start taping up playgrounds, you piss them off, and then they start slacking on other fronts. Um, but we who spend time in medicine, I think we know it very viscerally. You know what it's like in a primary care appointment. Um, you see somebody for the first time. Can you imagine if you if you talked about all the things a primary care doctor is supposed to talk about on visit one? They ain't gonna be a visit two, nope. right? You know, so we get some sense of what is realistic, what is practical, what is pragmatic, um, and what is really kind of unattainable. Yeah, and 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 it factors in multiple variables in a complex situation. Yeah. And COVID is the perfect example. Anyone who tells you they know the answer, anyone who's giving you a black and white absolute, you should be very skeptical, no matter what side they're on. And yet we we aren't. We actually tribalize towards those lines of reasoning. You know, we're in the Osterholm group on, you know, this, or we're on the Monica Gandhi group on actually Monica is beautifully nuanced on most things. I think she yeah, is, yeah, she really is. And um and then you have the, you know, the opposite group, the Scott Atlas group, which is like, oh, hey, yeah. this is all economic. This is economic. And and again, we talked about this last time. And I actually think they're they're all coming from a place of, hey, I have a strong intuition about this based on my experience in these domains that are not the broadest domains, they're these domains. 
And he, I'm gonna apply it to this and I'm gonna apply it in a very absolute way because I think this is, I feel so strongly about this. I got one topic for you that I don't know if you read about. Um, healthcare worker anecdotes in the age of COVID. Have you seen this article in Wired? Um, no, but it sounds right up the alley of what I get every single day. This was a story about, I think, a nurse um, who said that um, many of the people as they're, as they're in their final throes of COVID and dying, they say, oh, I can't believe it's real or something like that. Oh, very, yeah, Very right. powerful anecdote. Right. And um, Wired investigated, like, is this true or not? Right. Um, and they talked to other people in this hospital, and they're not vouching for the fidelity of this story. Um, and and it, they really raise questions about whether or not the anecdote was, was faithful. Right. There's another example. Um, I think some ED doctor um, talked about how he cared for a patient with COVID. Um, he was a Jewish physician, and when they took the patient's shirt off, he had a swastika tattoo on the chest and uh, SS tattoos on the arms. This was Taylor Nichols, yeah. yeah and I saw some internet sleuth. Did you see this? I didn't see this. Some internet sleuth has identified uh, several instances in the past where he has tweeted a very similar description of a patient he took care of a year ago, two years ago, and something beyond, I, I believe. Um, you can go find the thread. Um, and and I guess it raises the question of whether or not there are multiple such people with these unique constellation of tattoos or whether or not there is something about the present story that uh, may or may not be fully accurate. Can I tell you something? Yeah. So that's amazing. I didn't know that. Like, I'm really kind of shook right now because yeah. that guy um, who's now held as this big hero of like, oh, this patient with a swastika and he still took care of him, but it tested his compassion as a Jewish physician and so on. And uh, compelling story. He has tried vigorously to get me canceled on Twitter for a video I did about abortion where I dared to say, hey, I don't think we should legislate a woman's right to choose these things. However, here was my experience when I was a medical student witnessing abortions and how difficult it was for me. And he said, oh, you don't even understand, you're giving power to these anti-abortion uh, activists and so on and so forth. And, and I, I, I said, I told him that I, I mean, I made the video that, that I thought was- You're, you're speaking uh, to your own- Speaking to my own experience right, yeah. and also still advocated for right, what you're advocating course. for. Right. But he was unrelenting. We had private conversations. He threatened to make those private conversations public. That's always a- Oh yeah, which is a good sign, right? Which I would have said, fine, go ahead. I told you exactly what I think of you. And um, so it's interesting. So again, it gets to, it pulls it full circle to what these social media platforms are. They are ways for people with no power and no recognition to suddenly have perceived power and recognition at the expense of people, other human beings. I think, um... Your your story is is quite uh, interesting about um, about how we're starting to live in a world where um, you know your story is your truth to yourself, mm. and at the end of the day, it's your experience. Mm. I mean, who, no one can tell you how you felt when you were witnessing X, Y, or Z. Right? Mm. You, only you can say that. Um, we live in a world where everyone wants to to play four chess moves ahead. So the thought is, well. You know, it doesn't matter that you're saying what's true to you. How might somebody interpret that? And what might that mean? And what might that mean? And what might that mean? <laughs> we're not good at this game no. as people. We're really not good at it. I think a lot of COVID has been the same way. It's not just, um, you know, well, if you say there's seasonality to the virus, somebody might say it's not real. Um, they may not wear the mask and that would be bad. So therefore we shouldn't study whether or not there could be a seasonal component. We shouldn't even talk about it or study it. Um, that's not a way to... to operate in the world. Um, yeah. You you gotta be able to to talk about this and have a dialogue. Um, 
And then to your next point, I think the other point about social media, it has been a way for um, a lot of people to get a lot of attention. And and that is always a double-edged sword because mm. attention when directed at the right fronts is very powerful. But um, we all know, I mean, I can make up a story right now that I can guarantee you'll get like, you know. A billion likes. A billion likes. Yeah. We all know that there has long been a streak in humanity for confabulation, for just coming up with a story that, you know, in every culture, you know, since the dawn of time, there's always been sort of confabulation. And and that can be done for very powerful effect. Um, and 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 I think it can be problematic. I mean, it, I think it is problematic. If, if the core elements of, when a doctor tells a story, you know, um, no one expects all of the facts to be true because it would be very identifying, but the core elements have to be true. Like somebody had to come with, um, you know, uh, Nazi tattoos and they had to have had COVID. Those are like two core elements of the story. Right. Um, those have to be true for the story to have integrity. Um, and I think if those core elements are not true, a guy who denied COVID saying, I can't believe it's real as they're dying, that has to be a core truth for the narrative to have the impact it does. And it's very important that it should. And so the Wired article is very good about this, investigating, is this possibly true? Um, social media makes it very difficult to verify a lot of these accounts, and it incentivizes people to have such accounts. And I think it's it's a deep risk. Ah, uh, man, I can't tell you how many people send me these accounts. Did you hear patients are denying on their deathbed? Did you hear a guy with a swastika came in and was demanding care, whatever it was? And I'm like, yeah, I have, because about a thousand other people have sent it to me. And yeah, I have, because I moderate my discussion groups and I see what people are posting. And and social media, oh God, you know, it, it, it really sometimes hurts me to think that this is how I spend my time, is on social media putting content out. I don't actually sit and troll social media. See, I, that's what I was trying to um, explain to one of our, uh, somebody we both know who spends a lot of time on social media. This person was like, well, you know, you're so critical of social media, but I think it's good. And I was like, what you mean by social media and what I think most of us mean by social media, it's not the very same different, thing, very, very different. different. I mean, you are basically a television station. I mean, of sorts, right? You're producing content and you're putting it out there. And, and that's really what I do mostly because I'm doing a podcast, uh, different, you know, medium, but the same thing. Um, and this person that we both know is, is sort of in that business too. Um, that's not what people are doing on there. People are, it's their whole lifeline to the other world. It's the place where they're putting their most flattering pictures up and they're putting out a version of themselves, projecting a version of themselves that they wish they could be or aspire to be. Um, and, and I think it's quite dangerous. I mean, all these times we've talked, which has been, I guess, several times we've talked this so far, we've talked about the dangers around ideas, how ideas get polarized, how ideas, we haven't talked as much about the dangers of your your personal integrity. Mm. Um, you know, I'm somebody who never says anything personal on social media. Right. You don't know anything I ate or drank. Right. Um, you don't know any restaurant I've ever been to, Z. Dot. <laughs> no, <Yeah. laughs> if you ever want to go, you're never going to know. No one can contact trace you, man. No one can contact yeah, exactly. trace you, you have to know. Um, but, but it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not comfortable living in a world where you can like um, what I do on the weekends. You know, mm. I'm just not, I'm, I'm not going to play that game. You know, mm. I think I just, I, and I think it's bad. It's corrosive. Um, we all lived, I think it was more common a few years ago, uh, or maybe when I was on Facebook, where I would just see like people tried to, it almost feels like they're trying yeah. to travel to beautiful places and post all these pictures to, to show that they're living in an, an, un, an enviable life. And then some of those people I know, um, you know, have later gotten divorced. Miserable. Miserable. Yeah. They were not in a good place when they posted those pictures. It did not reflect those. Absolutely. Yeah. You're doing it for the gram, as, they, as the kids say. Yeah. And uh, I, I tell you, like, I, I, I don't do that. 
Like that's not what, like you said, I'm a TV station, yes. but what I do is actually part of the part of the appeal of this TV station to some is that they see the completely authentic me. So, and, and more so behind paywall, yes, which you actually talk where really. it, I mean, so the 8,000 odd people that support the show on Facebook, YouTube, and now we're doing locals, which is completely off that grid. It's like, you know, was started by like Dave Rubin because he yes. got canceled on Twitter. So I'm like a little worried. It's a little righty tighty. You'll let the audience tell you. Exactly. They'll tell me. But the thing is, it's totally off the social media grid. So the incentive is, well, people are paying to be there so they can have authentic conversations. And they may learn a little bit about my personal life. They may see my kids and stuff, but really it's about, hey, I'm going to tell you, you know, you're going to get me. You're not going to get some character that I portray or anything. And, and, that's the power and the potential of the technology. But social media, you nailed it. it, it we're always got fear of missing out. We see our friends doing these crazy things and you realize they got divorced. Or then worse, they've hurt themselves or something like that. And and it's really a- um, But I just wanna like agree with you about the strength of the technology, which is that, yeah. you know, in it, 40 years ago, some associate professor of hematology oncology is not going to have a, um, you know, hour a week podcast where he talks to you about a trial, um, you know, his thoughts and impressions of it. Um, I'm glad we live in a world where you can, that's a television station. That's what I'm running. Um, you know, I talk about Keynote 177. I don't know if anyone, any of your audience is going to be very interested in it, but you know what I mean? Like, that's a very unique television station. There are few people who want to tune in. Um, and uh, thanks for tuning in. No. <laughs> um, but you know, I, and, and I have stations that I listen to that would never have existed a long time ago. And, and you're putting out a, a program that is a blend of you know, entertainment, thoughtful commentary, and as you say, have said before, trying to strive towards an alt middle. Um, mm. which is something that, boy, do we need. Um, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Um, and that's the, the strength. But I think the lim the downside of it is that um, a lot of people are still figuring out who they are and what they believe. And and I, and I we talked about this before. Yeah, like, we did. You know, I pity them in living in the social media world where um, really fantastic stories get a lot of traction. So of course, wouldn't it be great if a fantastic story happened in your ER? Um, really provocative things get a lot of retweets. So wouldn't it be nice if um, a dying patient said, um, oh, I can't believe it's real or something like that mm. to your ear. Um, and, 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 and that's problematic. And I'll say one more thing. I mean, I don't know if people know this about me, but I actually don't believe in using anecdotes to really drive um, policy arguments. I spend a lot of time to remove anecdotes and try to do like an empirical study to show that like, you know, on average, when you look at the situation, this happens X percent of the time. Um, because I think we are as people overly persuaded by the anecdote and we don't do a good job of stepping back and actually confronting our biases. And actually I've had a paper that I was trying to write where I have a strong feeling and intuition about a topic. Um, but then I asked my research assistant to say, you know what, before I write this, go look at 30, 30 examples and let's see how often this occurs. Cause shit, I might be wrong. That see that yeah. is what I call growing the writer, the the intelligence and the and this and the thinker above sitting on this elephant that is our emotional intuitive self. And that elephant responds to anecdote and stories. It's a story driven creature. But the writer can either go along for the ride or it can take a space and go. Oh, elephant saying this. Hey, RA, go and research this and see if if my elephant's just off base. Yeah, because I have a recall bias or I have a, there's a million biases that I could have and, and we see it. And, you know, it's funny, it takes someone like a Dilbert writer, like Scott Adams to write a book that he called Loser Think, which was particularly, you know, provocative because he's like a Trump booster. But the thing is, he's actually a clear thinker. So he wrote the whole book about all their, our cognitive 
biases. And he's like, if someone attacks you on Twitter or f social media and they're showing one of these biases, you have my permission to take a screenshot of the page in the book and share it with them. Non, not in a non-judgmental way, just go, you know, this is interesting. Here's an example of a bias that you might, you might be a victim of here. <laughs> That's very interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, I'll just give you one example of something where like this, this RA actually gave an interesting answer was I was once in an argument, you know, for years I've been arguing about the high and unsustainable price of drugs. And somebody came and threw in my face that say, you know, um, you're, you're strangely reticent about the hospital charges. Mm. You work for a hospital, don't you? you know, mm. And I was like, oh, am I strangely reticent? I don't know. And then like, in fact, as a profession, we talk so much about drug prices. We don't talk about prices in proportion to their, their expense, like hospitals and imaging and things like that. Um, and so I said, shoot, um, is this person right or wrong? And so we collected a set of like, I forget, so many articles. And we asked, how often do the authors specifically fault um, high prices in healthcare on these five different things or six different things? Um, and actually we found that, um, that if you look at the global landscape, that there did not appear to be a bias. It was actually roughly in proportion to the spending. Um, so uh, it kind of surprised me. And so I thought it was so interesting because um, – like I didn't look at myself personally, and maybe maybe I am particularly critical of pharmaceutical drug prices in part because I'm a cancer doctor. So of course it's like the you know huge expense in my field and my line of work. Um, but this person had a skewed impression of the world too because this person felt like they're picking on pharma companies. They're, they must be disproportionately picking on pharma companies, and that turned out not to be empirically the case. Um, and so it is funny that we all view the world through our own lenses, and sometimes. The only way you can settle something is ask a third party, as I did. I asked some people who work for me, um, to to really look into something it, without telling them too much about what you're really after. You know, I, I'm going to tie this idea of bias back to the original. Remember that we started the show. I'm like, I'm only interviewing. Someone told me I'm only interviewing Indian people, and they're like, pretty tribal, isn't it, of you, Z Dog, since you're you know South Asian male and. And, and I actually, had, I had to take a pause and be like, wait, no, that's entirely possible. Could I be doing this and not know it? Because yes. I'm not doing it consciously. And then I thought, okay, so what are, and this is Scott Adams talks about these, these failures of alternative explanations that people don't even try to come up with. Yes. They just assume they use the mind reading fallacy. So they assume they know your mind and then they apply it to you without thinking, okay, what else could be happening? So I had to do the experiment with yeah, myself. No, I'm like, yeah. okay, so let me see. So I'm only, I, the last three guests I've had are all Indian. All right, let's look at the other guests I've had. Is this even true? Oh, it turns out it's not because, okay. oh, it's just like saying, oh, you only interview men. Okay, well, why is that? Well, last okay, three were, the last three were men. So there's a recall bias, recall but bias, then, yeah. or proximity bias or whatever it is. And then I said, well, wait a minute. What if it's true? What if the majority of the people that I interview are Indian? Okay, let me look at where I live. I live in the Bay Area. That's What's the proportion of, yeah, of immigrants say. that are in healthcare? Yeah. Well, it's quite high. Because you, I mean, I would say that it is possible that, of course, every, that all of us are motivated by something that we don't see potentially bias. But I would say the things that one would think about is proximity. Yeah, you you tend to interview people who can physically come to your studio. Correct. Um, uh, overlapping interests. You tend to interview people in healthcare. Correct. Um, the 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 baseline, the denominator of of what people's gender and race and ethnicity are. Um, and and there very likely are a lot of Indian, I, I don't know if this is gonna be controversial, but there are a lot of Indian physicians it's in the fact. Bay Area. It's, it's a fact, to be a it's fact. a fact. Yeah, Go to it. Fremont, it's 100%. <laughs> I worked there for a while. Well, I, I always tell people that, you know, I used to sit on the wards. This is not a, this is not a joke, this is a true story. I used to sit on the wards um, when I was attending. And um, I don't know if people know this, but when I attend, I, always, I almost always wear a suit. And that happened oh. because I was in attending when I was 32 and- I You know, had to look older than state of oh age, God, yeah. People, 
I, I wouldn't dress in a suit and all I would hear is how, how old young. are you? How yeah. young are you? When are you become a Dr. Doogie Howser? This, 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 right. This, enough of this damn exactly. patronizing <laughs> me because I'm young looking. I was like, okay, fine. And then I started wearing a suit and then that just poof, gone, gone. overnight. Instantly. Gone overnight. Yeah. No, nobody ever said you look too young. And so I would go on the wards and I'd sit there in my suit waiting for my fellow to come or something like that so we could round. And I swear, Many, many times people walk up to me and hand me an EKG and say, can you read this? I say, I, I think so, but you know, I'm not a cardiologist. They're not a cardiologist? I'm like, is that, is that so much of a stereotype? I'm a hematologist oncologist. What? And what? Like An away. Indian hemonctoc? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, dude, that's hilarious. <laughs> Every, I mean, I even it's made true. a song called One Seek, which was a parody of One Week by the Bare Naked Ladies, mm -hmm. where they I, I went through all the stereotypes. And they're stereotypes for a reason because just numerically, you could probably do a study. Now you should do the study. I, yeah, I so again, you kind of look there at the, are a lot of Indian cardiologists. Looking at the bias. You know, you know what? I, I grew up thinking that because of I grew up in Cleveland area and my yeah. parents were friends with a lot of Indian cardiologists. Me, me too. Yeah. Me too. To this day, they're like, why didn't you become cardiologist? You know, <laughs> there's so much money. You just you put in the stent and um, whether it works or not, doesn't matter. You get paid either way. So, so, so well, you know what's funny is I, I wanted to come back to something that you said, which is you dressed in a suit. Yeah. Now, okay, I'm going to give props to a colleague of mine who hired me actually at, at uh, Stanford or Back in the day, he was, he was, a, he came back to um, medicine as an older, like he had an MBA and some other stuff, and so he was like one of those the older students that came back. So he was in our residency a couple years ahead of me or something, and he reached out after I'd been working in tech for a year after residency because I'd just been so burned out. And he's like, you need to come back and do this and that. So he was always like a little mentor to me in terms of the practicalities of how to be a doctor. And he used to tell me because I was young looking in those days, he would say always wear a shirt and a tie and a white coat and so on. And the reason you do that, it's the reason I let my hair go gray, is that patients are looking for an authority figure. And if you project professionalism and authority, that will help with the relationship. Yeah, and they'll listen. So that was one thing that I thought was interesting. The other thing is, and he has all these pearls over the years that are similar. So one thing he just texted me this morning, they are getting crushed right now with COVID at the hospital. And my old group is like, half of them are in quarantine because they've been exposed. And so it's it, it's hitting the fan. And he goes, this is what I've started doing. He goes, anytime I text a nurse with some request, especially if it has a negative valence, like it's something difficult, like put in a Foley or take out the, you know, the the, the Foley. <laughs> now you're gonna be changing. The rectal tube. Always say thanks with an exclamation point at the end. And it changes the valence of it because it's become a courteous thing where you're acknowledging that they're doing something for you and so on. Even though you don't have to do that, it helps a lot. So these little things are about our interface to interface connection. So it is important. Uh, it has nothing to do with bias and all that, but it is, it, it, it's, it's our perception makes reality. And I guess not to be a stodgy old man, but um, I will say that sometimes I do notice a lot of people on the wards in the uh, ward du jour oh, of the scrubs yeah. and the white coat. And and I wanna say, you know, I got nothing against it. And right. look, I've been a resident too, and I wore a lot of scrubs. Me too. Um, but I will say, I will encourage people to do their own investigation. Randomly assign your days and wear a suit and tie or a very professional dress or wear scrubs and see how you like the response you're getting. Um, and maybe it's even in your own, maybe it's in my own mind. Like I have I have more confidence because, but I do think um, anecdotally, and I think there are some studies, it's been a while since I looked into that literature. I think there are some studies about the physical appearance of a doctor. Professional and, uh, appearance. Professional appearance of a doctor and how patients respond, yeah. And you know, we could get canceled for this, right? Because this is like a med bikini 2.0. Like, <laughs> <say> that. <laughs> uh, right, yeah. I mean, just, I, I, I think 
And again, again, we and you, you said it. You said, well, "I don't sound like a curmudgeonly old doctor at yeah. 37 or however old you are." The 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 truth is, I say it all the time because I found it empirically to be true. But you're right. If we studied it carefully, just let people do their own. Experiment. Let them do their own A/B experiments. And if you hate us, then you hate us. But then you, yeah, I mean, you can't hate me. It's your experiment. You run it the way you want. Go you run adjudicate it. the way you want. Find out. Yeah, find One out. day wear like just yeah. this really formal garb, and the next, and then wear your your wrinkly scrubs. Yep. You know they they're oh, always wrinkly. They're wrinkly. <laughs> they got wrinkly. some stains on them. They're tied up at the wrong part of your abdomen, so like it shows either too little or too much muffin top. I mean, I've done all these things, Vinay. Every single one. I've I've lost every single uh, battle with fashion that could be lost. Uh, But yeah, I I did notice it. It was absolutely, and especially I had a a patient population that spanned spanned the socioeconomic strata. And what I found actually really interesting was all socioeconomic strata patients responded, I felt, to a professional attire. Uh, now, again, you could let your guard down on the weekends. You could come in with something dressed down a little. And then what was interesting is they actually felt, I got this feeling, and again, this may just be perception on my part, like you said, you need to study it, that they were like, oh, this guy's kind of a human. Like, Yeah, I, I always get, <laughs> like, if you dress down on the weekends, I find that people are more likely to ask you a question. They wouldn't ask you on the weekdays, like, oh, what are you doing later today? Or right, you know, something a more personal, more like, human to human kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Everyone, people should do what's right for them. Yes. What's right for me is to wear a suit. Um, I, I I have once I started doing, I really liked it, and also makes my life simple because I don't have to think about what to wear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So John Kniff was my friend who uh, who makes these recommendations. I'm gonna have him on the show at some point because he he has these. He he has a little chair that folds up that he carries, and it looks like a little cane. And what he does, he comes into a patient's room and he unfolds the I've chair seen some people like that. and sits and down. Sits it, so he gets and it level. He gets it level, and he's there, and he shows that he's present. And it's these little perceptual things, right? And it's so it's part of the healing thing. Jim Doty was on the show; he's a neurosurgeon. And he was talking about you know patients seem to do better when a surgeon leans in, holds their hand, tells them, "Hey, this is how healing works." Post op, they have better they seem to have better outcomes. I don't know. He had some data that he was citing that I haven't looked into. I've seen also another thing people make a lot of calls for is uh, the bedside presentation to have the resident present the patient at their bedside in front oh, of them. Oh, right, yeah. And offline, because I'll never say this publicly, but I had a story <laughs> once where the attendant- Wait, so you want me to edit this out? Yeah, you can edit it. You know, you can keep this part. Okay. I, I won't say the part that's- uh, Okay, taboo. good, good. Uh, I had an attending who felt very strongly and he and he, and uh, and uh, we went uh, to the room and my sub I was a resident at the time, my sub I said, um, for this patient, I would strongly advise we don't do this. And the attending said, no, let's do it. I promise you, it's not gonna be as bad as you think. And it ended up being the absolute worst. Oh. <laughs> Like the worst moment I've ever seen in my life. And then we walked out of there and I told that attending, I was like, you know, you win some, you lose some. Oh my <laughs> god! Like you always, oh you're my not god. always right just because yeah. you're older and wiser. That is brilliant. That's a good- uh, Well, I didn't tell you what actually happened and I will, well, I will take it to my grave. And you should, and you yeah. should, because sometimes uh, things are best left in confidence. Yeah. But you know, just looking at your reaction, I know it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Just not a good. The student was right. You know, sometimes students, students are. Right. They're very perceptive. Very perceptive. Yeah, it's they are. A good idea because they know that patient. They know that patient. <laughs> they spent hours sitting there trying to extract what yeah. little history they can pull out. Only so that the attending goes in and 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 the the patient volunteers information. They tell the student. Makes the yeah, student every single that. time, nurses time. complain about the same thing. Yeah. Like you know, they, they say one thing to the nurse, and then yeah. when the doctor's there, it's like, hey guy. <laughs> It's like, oh, really? Come on, man. Uh, it's all perception. It's all a little hierarchical. And I mean, medicine is 
is just emerging out of witchcraft, really. I mean, and to some of the stuff we do, you know, this is your passion is witchcraft. It's right. straight witchcraft. I think, and and we we don't think of it as such. It's right. been so ingrained and sterilized and formalized, but may in fact be no better than witchcraft. Right. A good chunk of what we do. But the other thing is, we balance it out with some things we do that are so of indisputable benefit, right. we get away with a little bit of that's it. That's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. Exactly. Dude, so I think we talked about a lot of things. A lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So guys, like, I mean, I don't even know. Just share this thing, enjoy it, cancel us. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was fun. So every time, we're just gonna keep doing this anytime you're by. We have to stop because I want to record you a little bit for our, yeah. Let's do it right now. Guys, we out. We're going to do a plenary session podcast. Check out his podcast, Plenary Session, Vinay Prasad. It's fantastic. All right, especially because I'm on it. That's probably the only reason. Those are the best episodes. (laughs) All right, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, It just really helps the algorithm to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.